Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. If you turn to page 586, you'll find the first reading, which is Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves With violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely, In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream When one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Then if you turn to page 1216, and we're back to James um, chapter 5, starting to read at the first verse. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes And you'll know, no, or you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you that you speak uh, this forever word to us. uh, A word that you speak uh, out of your love for us. And so, Father, we do pray that as we uh, sit tonight, that we would sit humbly under this word. Uh, knowing that you are kind and good, and so when you speak, it is for our good. Uh, Help us uh, with this passage, uh, which speaks of uh, that which can so ensnare us. Uh, Help us to hear your word clearly, uh, that we may heed it. And we pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, please take a seat. And uh, please turn back in your Bibles to James chapter 5. 
It's on page 1216 that Paul read for us just before. As we continue our journey through uh, this letter, we're we're looking at James 5 verses 1 to 6 uh, tonight. Uh, Really, uh, really, James 5, 1 to 12 are two sides of a coin. We're looking at the first half of it uh, this week, verses uh, 1 to 6, page 1216. Uh, They call it uh, FOMO. A serious disease, a disease that affects many of us, perhaps all of us here. FOMO, that is the fear of missing out. Uh, the fear that as uh, life uh, around you rushes by, that uh, you grow more and more anxious that you might be missing out on something, or missing out on some experience, uh, some event, some possession, some piece of news, the fear of missing out. It can take many different forms. Uh, For the younger generation, it uh, often takes the form of forever checking Facebook. Endless uh, checks just in case I've missed a status update or a comment or a like. Don't want to miss out on anything as life runs by. And uh, uh, FOMO doesn't just uh, strike with things like Facebook. It can sometimes strike uh, as we see things that others have and uh, we grow uh, desperate to have them. Perhaps I need that thing, the latest smartphone, which of course would enable me to be even more up to speed as life uh, flies by on Facebook. Uh, The latest fashions. And now I'm going to show my ignorance here, but what is it with the brand uh, Hollister? Uh, everything you buy from that store has the word Hollister in giant letters uh, across your chest, which of course makes you a giant advertisement for the company Hollister, which causes others to see you walk by and think, wow, Hollister, how have I lived without Hollister? Must have Hollister. And so almost by magic, you find yourself at Meadow Hall outside their uh, bizarrely dimly lit store. <laughs> and uh, you walk past and you think, no, I'm not going to go in. But if I don't go in, I, I might miss out. And so you enter. And for some reason it is uh, ridiculously pitch black inside, which means you can't even see what you're missing out on, uh, which makes the fear only worse. So I must uh, buy everything that I can see and can touch with my hands just in case. Uh, But don't get me wrong, the fear of missing out is not a condition reserved just for the younger generation. It hits us all. Uh, The fear of missing out on the nice house or the nicer house, the bespoke kitchen, the extension, whatever it might be. Uh, The fear of missing out on the nice holiday, they're off to Spain, I'm going to Skegness. Uh, The fear of falling behind with the nice gadgets, the latest, the greatest, the bigger, the smarter. Uh, The fear of not tutoring my children in enough subjects so that they can get ahead. Uh, The fear of them not being in enough sports clubs or music groups or dance groups or whatever it might be. Uh, Even for retirees, the fear that uh, you see what others can afford and enjoy in their retirement is out of your grasp. You ever get the sense that you're missing out in life, you're falling short? It's sort of like that feeling that, that happens when you walk on a plane. I've had to do that a few times recently. And uh, if you're like me, you've got the economy seat at the very back of the plane. What they make you do is uh, the walk of shame. <laughs> uh, they make you walk through first class and business class and premium economy and every other class they can invent before you get to your seat. And they make you walk through them and say, sir, that's be- first class. It's comfy, isn't it? It looks nice. That's not your seat, sir. Keep walking. Business class, equally comfy. 
Uh, lovely big screen. Again, not your seat, sir. Please keep walking. Until you make it to the very back of the plane and you're sharing it there with the bathrooms and the galley and all of those things and it says, sir, that's your seat. I think they do it because of this fear. Uh, they want you to see what you could have had if you just reached a little bit further, uh, just stretched. Uh, all this could have been yours. I reckon that desire for the better life drives so much of this fear of missing out for all ages. Uh, whether it be the Hollister hoodie or the HTC phone or the home or the holiday, whatever it is, what wealth can afford us is incredibly powerful. It's what drives the merchants. Remember we met them last week in chapter 4 verse 13. Remember their simple plan, we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll make money. The truth is that's not really what they're about. They don't want to make money. They want money so that they can create, if you like, a a security, a a firewall around their life against this fear of missing out. With money I can buy the things that I lack that might bring this fear upon me. And I'm sure the first readers of this letter, you remember their story, would have felt that fear. They had been forced to leave Jerusalem, leave everything they had behind. The life they'd built there was gone. I imagine they would have had a strong sense of this fear of missing out as they found themselves in new nations, surrounded by rich and established people, and they had nothing. How strong the temptation would have been to pursue this this firewall of wealth that would have enabled them to have these things again. Let's face it, for them, being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ had cost them dearly. And so they would have been tempted, I imagine, to stop swimming against the tide of their culture, to stop persevering in faith and to, well, play at the games that we've seen in this letter, play at favourites and things like that in, in the hope that they would gain this powerful wealth. But James writes to them to say, are you afraid of missing out? Well, let me tell you about missing out. It's what he's been saying all along. He says, I don't want you to miss out on the main game of life. I don't want you to miss out on God's very good purpose for your life. You see, the main game of life is not pursuing and having wealth and all that it affords us. It is faith, humbly heeding the word of truth, the gospel. Humbly heeding God's message about his son, his mighty death and resurrection for us. That is the main game of life. Humbly heeding it. You remember back in chapter 1 verse 4 for this extraordinary purpose. To become mature, complete, lacking for nothing. Don't miss out on that, James has been telling us. But here's the thing. I imagine as we arrive at chapter 5, as we do tonight, you can almost hear them asking, uh, I've heard that, James, it's hard not to hear what you've been saying, but let's be honest. How is persevering by faith not missing out in life? When we're not just sort of talking in theory, when we're talking about real life, how is it not missing out? Because as I look around, as I reflect on uh, everything that's around me and all that I've lost, all that I've been through, it's hard, James, not to feel like I'm missing out. Now you paint this black and white picture that says life and life to the full can only be found by persevering faith in Jesus. But James, as I look around and I see people who have no interest in following him, no interest in the purpose that you speak of, they're doing just fine. In fact, it seems as as if those who have no plan to live by faith, they seem to be thriving. 
are like the merchants of chapter 4 and perhaps we could feel the same. Those who are around us, our neighbours, our colleagues, our family who have no interest whatsoever in following Jesus seem to be doing just fine in life. You can almost hear him echoing the words we heard from the psalmist in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to his people. We know that, those who trust him. But James, I envy those who arrogantly ignore our God and seem to prosper. Those who appear to sail through life, who are free from these endless calls to serve as we Christians are called to do or to even give our wealth away. And even some of them who seem to have acquired their wealth in dodgy ways, there doesn't seem to be any accountability for it. Have I persevered by faith in Jesus and the finished work of Jesus' death and resurrection? Was that in vain? Because it can feel like it. Well, James is going to respond to this fear of missing out in these next two weeks in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And here's what he's going to do for us. He will say, as you look out on the world and you have that fear that you've missed out, uh, let me encourage you to stand with me on the very ground of your faith. Uh, Take your eyes for a minute off the prosperity of uh, those around you for a moment and fix them on the cross of Jesus Christ and his mighty resurrection and ascension as Lord of all. Because that is the moment your eyes should be fixed on. That is the decisive event of all human history. Because all that remains, the other side of that event, all that remains is the return of the risen Lord as judge. Did you hear that as Paul read it for us? How many times the judgment, the coming judgment of the Lord is the perspective James is trying to fix our eyes on. He's saying, come stand with me from the viewpoint of the last day when the king comes and he is coming. Do you see it there in 5 verse 7? He's coming. In fact, 5 verse 8, he says he's near. 5 verse 9, he's standing at the door. That's how close he is. Come stand with me on the final day, says James, and look around at life again from that perspective and see what you've really missed out on. He's going to speak about that, as I've said, in two parts over these two weeks. This week, uh, these first six verses, what he's actually doing for us as believers is he will speak to the rich unbeliever. But he will very deliberately do that in our earshot. He wants us to hear these things. These verses are hard, but we must listen. And then next week, he will turn his attention to us directly and show us the implications of what we will see tonight. But have a look with me as he speaks to the rich unbelievers that were around the believers that he first wrote to. James chapter 5, verse 1. He simply says this, Now listen, you rich people. The obvious question here is who is James addressing? Who are the rich? Uh, Because rich is an elusive concept, isn't it? It's kind of relative. It's hard to pin down. Who are the rich? I imagine if I, uh, I won't do this, don't worry. If I said, hands up tonight if you are rich, really rich, uh, not many of us uh, would want to put up our hand. Because I I imagine most of us, uh, the way we measure it is we always find someone who is incredibly more rich than us. That's the really rich person. I'm not rich. That person is It's again a bit like walking onto the plane. I'm not rich because I'm not in first class or business class. I'm just plain old economy, which is ridiculous, isn't it? What are you talking about? You're on a plane in the sky. How rich you have to be to do that. 
It's strange, isn't it, that we always um, measure it that direction. We find someone richer than us and so we're not rich. We never do it the other way by the least rich, the extremely poor in our world. Only then would we be overwhelmed by our enormous wealth. But I expect that the puzzle here in 5 verse 1 of who these rich people are is more subtle than that. It's not that James is saying there's a certain net worth and once you reach above that, you are rich. Below that, you're okay. No, it's more, uh, more subtle than that. Have a look. Uh, quite a lot of this letter has been about this whole question. It's not so much your net worth, it's how you view your life. Uh, All the way through he's been saying this. Stop thinking uh, by these categories that the world around you thinks by. Rich is good, poor is bad. Remember it back in chapter 1 verse 9 he said this. The one who is poor should take pride in his high position. And the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Stop thinking, says James, that rich is better and poor worse. That rich equals honoured and poor equals despised because... When the judge is standing at the door, all of those categories get turned around. You see, the poor person who lives by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is in reality incredibly rich in these last days. And the rich person who is opposed to Jesus and his purposes is in reality incredibly poor. And so in James 5 verse 1, James is addressing those who still consider themselves rich Those for whom wealth is their life, their trust, their hope, their their firewall, their security. Listen, you rich people, he says. Given that the judge is standing at the door, you who trust in riches, who feel secure and comfortable because you have them, you've made this good gift, wealth and riches, money, you've made it your ultimate. This has become your God, the thing you trust in. And if that's you, here's what James says. Here's what our God says. Here's how you should respond. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. You see, from our God's perspective, in these last days with the judge standing at the door, the rich, their future is miserable. A miserable prospect. Let me ask you tonight, outside, uh, looking at this right now, outside this very moment, uh, how often does that thought cross your mind, that to be rich is a miserable thing? (laughs) Miserable. It doesn't come naturally to us. It seems all upside down, doesn't it? But that's why we must listen to this word. Verse 1 declares that rich people can only be happy in their riches if they refuse to think of the future coming of the Lord, if they just block that out. Being rich, making this good gift of wealth a God, trusting in wealth as your security and comfort, it's a miserable thing. And here's why. It's what the scriptures say again and again. Good gifts make miserable gods. Good gifts make miserable gods. And James is going to give us three reasons why wealth and riches is such a miserable God. Here's the first of them. In verses 2 and 3, it is this. Your God, wealth, has failed you. Now, all the way through these three reasons, James' focus remains on that final day. But what he does for us is he speaks of the present reality of trusting in riches as well. Have a look, verse 2. Your wealth has rotted. 
and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And the misery of wealth is not just reserved for that last day. Even now, this day, today, uh, those caught up in the trap of making this good thing the ultimate thing, placing their faith in wealth and what it affords us, even now, that God lets you down. Now, wealth provides miserable value, doesn't it? And rich people know that from experience. But it's a lesson that's hard to stick with. Now, take, for instance, the whole global financial crisis. Our dream as a nation, even the politicians are saying it, is to get back to the point when we are really rich again. Everything will be okay then. And we feel it even personally as that, that affects us, our own investments, our house value dips or our, uh, our retirement nest egg dwindles. Uh, how weak the value of our wealth really is. And even just with what we have, our stuff, it fades or it goes out of style. I mean, how exhausting is fashion? But it's not only of miserable value, it provides miserable comfort. Now that's uh, what the Old Testament prophets say when they speak of idols. They say that this is what they're like. They're a burden for the weary. Can you imagine anything worse to give a weary man than a burden? And that is what wealth is when it becomes our God. It's like a, a blanket that never quite comforts us on a cold night. Never enough. I was reading uh, recently of the youngest lottery winner in the UK ever. He won a ridiculous amount of money, age 17. He died age 24, exhausted by his wealth. It is a miserable comfort. But not only is wealth a miserable value and miserable comfort, when it comes to that final day, it is a miserable witness. This aspect of our lives that we think is going to be like the star witness that says we have lived life well, turns out to be a witness for the prosecution against us before the judge you see it there in verse 3 your gold and silver have corroded their corrosion will testify against you this life that consisted of the abundance of stuff these possessions well they've rotted these beautiful clothes now riddled with moth holes this car rusted away the beautiful house now crumbling the wonderful holidays long forgotten All these things are paraded as exhibits of how we have totally missed the point of life. Evidence before the judge that we've trusted his gifts, not the giver. These things that were meant to be the the firewall against this fear of missing out now turn on me in judgment. Showing that my priorities in these last days have been utterly foolish. Showing that this life that I pursued, the good life, has, well, it's eluded me. And the life that the love of money has led to is not the good life, but, well, as James has said all the way through this letter, the disordered life, the bent out of shape life. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, for that's what James has been telling us, hasn't he? When you heed the wisdom from below, it leads not to the good life, but to selfish ambition. And that is the second reason that James gives us here that this God is so miserable. Now your God, verses 3 and 5, has made you selfishly indulgent. Have a look at the very end of verse 3. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now for James, uh, this is a sign of a mind that just isn't grasping reality. Now you know that sort of sense sometimes when you're going about something and you've just totally ignored the urgency of the situation you're in. 
It sort of reminds me, I remember when uh, Liz went into labour with our youngest, Tilly, uh, a few years ago. I got the call that uh, she'd gone into labour and it was urgent, it was time to go to the hospital. So I raced back down here from the church centre, back home to Silver Birch Avenue. I race inside, ready to sort of uh, swing into action with our brilliant plan for, for the trip to the hospital. And there is Liz in the kitchen preparing the salad for the event that we were going to that night. And now I'm busily over the next five minutes trying to convince Liz that maybe the salad could wait. Uh, Maybe the salad is something we could uh, leave for another time or another person and perhaps we should focus on the fact that you're about to have a human being come out of you and that would be perhaps a bit more important at this moment. But she wouldn't be dissuaded. We must finish the salad. This is an important salad. It's an important event. And so on we went. Well, picture that sort of uh, miscalculation of urgency and then times it by eternity, and that is what the end of verse 3 is saying. To hoard wealth on the last days is to totally miss what an urgent moment you are in. The great event of history has already happened in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Romans 8 tells us that the moment we're in now is like labour pains. The whole earth is in labour pains. It's just about to happen He's standing at the door. What sort of muddle-headed thinking in that moment, as that day speeds towards us, spends time playing the fear of missing out game with riches? What kind of foolishness it is to wait for that day, busying ourselves, hoarding wealth? And here's why the rich should weep, because they have totally miscalculated life in these last days, failed to see the signs of the coming judgment, busily going about this collecting of wealth, while the judge is standing at the door. But it's not just foolish. It is grotesque, says James. Uh, Here is a picture of a person curved utterly in on themselves, selfishly indulgent. It's the inverse of who we were made to be as creatures, who, by God's grace, uh, those of us who are believers in Jesus have been saved to be. You remember it back in 1 uh, verse 18, we were told we'd been given new birth when we came to him in faith. And as those with a new start, uh, chapter 2 verse 8 says we have a new love. That is love of the other, not of self. Well, the picture of the one who lives for wealth is of a creature committed to their own expansion, literally. And here in verse 5, you see what that creature looks like. A creature who in this last days is just getting fatter and fatter. You have lived life on earth in luxury and indulgence, says James. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? But it is the sort of picture we need if we are going to grasp the horror of living this way. A rich person who lives absorbed with the comforts and pleasures and experiences that wealth affords is pictured here like a dull turkey being fattened up for Christmas. Consuming everything that is put in front of it without any thought whatsoever. Ooh, more food. Oblivious to the fact that it is only making itself more plump, more ready for slaughter. Now here's the thing. As I think about that sort of image, as I think about the turkey being fattened up for Christmas, I kind of feel sorry for the turkey. Not sorry enough not to eat the turkey when it comes to Christmas, but kind of sorry because they have no idea what's coming. No idea whatsoever. But James won't let us think that way about those who trust in wealth. It is a conscious choice of the heart to worship created things rather than the creator. 
It is an approach to life that isn't harmless self-indulgence, but destructive to others. And that brings us to the third reason it is such a miserable God. Verses 4 and 6. Not only has your God failed you, not only has your God made you selfishly indulgent, but made you selfishly cruel. And consider the radical differences between the distorted creature described in these verses and the picture of flourishing humanity that our God is purposing us towards in 1 verse 4. Maturity, completeness, lacking for nothing. Chapter 2 verse 8, curved out to love others. Fruitful humility as we saw in chapter 3. But we see what human-centred wisdom leads to that would place its faith in wealth. You see it there in verse 4. Cruelty to others. Look, says James. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed the fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord Almighty. Now this is what the ambitious pursuit of wealth does to people. The rich in this world are usually those who win. Win at the competitive game of the world of work and acquisitions. In this world, there are winners and losers. And when you think as the rich do, you think, I must be a winner. But what the players of such a game overlook is that there is one who hears the cries of the losers. Those who have been trampled as we won. Those who were defrauded so that we could win. Their cries have reached the Lord. In this selfish cruel game of wealth accumulation no one else might know what I have done in order to become rich in fact I might not even know what companies have done with my investment to profit me I may get away with it but says James in 5 verse 4 the cries of the losers have reached the Lord Almighty he knows and he is the Lord Almighty it's no mistake that James has used that name there the God of angel armies who hears and can do something about it. And James drives home this selfish cruelty that the trust of money leads to in verse 6. Do you see it there? You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposed to you. Now James in that verse isn't, I don't think, making a universal accusation of any who is rich that all who live for wealth have been guilty of murder. Well, not directly. But the approach to life which to which the rich ascribe, if you belong to that. Uh, This is what such an approach is capable of because it is committed to its own good and that's it. It's not enough to protest that you don't approve of the murder of innocent people to make profit. I don't imagine many of us would. But the question he's asking is, do I stand against the whole way of life that pursues power over others through wealth just so that I can increase my wealth? And so there it is. Uh, Live life as a rich person. Live for wealth. Have wealth as your security and the future is miserable. Your God will fail you and then speak against you in the trial to come. Your God will make you selfishly indulgent and cruel and the Lord Almighty will be your judge. And so to the growing fear amongst those persevering by faith in Jesus... This fear of missing out, James simply says, come stand with me on the ground of the gospel. Come stand on the finished work of Jesus' death and resurrection. Come stand as he moves towards that final judgment day and see clearly what you've missed out on. Do you see it? Judgment. 
That's what you've missed out on. To respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is, as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 puts it, to turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son to come from heaven who will rescue us from this coming judgment. Now see what you've missed out on. Having turned from the idol of money, you are now safe from judgment in the one safe firewall that there is in this world and that is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let me leave you with four implications to consider. I'm merely going to state them. Uh, Therefore, perhaps discussion over tea and coffee tonight and uh, in the coming weeks in your small groups. uh, These are strong words that we've heard tonight in these six verses. Words that, as I said at the start, are directed towards unbelievers who live for wealth, but spoken so that we can hear them. And he will speak to us, as I said, directly next week in the coming verses. But I suspect that he speaks these words so that we can hear them because he knows how easily uh, this becomes our God too. So here's the four implications to leave you with for discussion. Now, first is this, how easily... Uh, we become double-minded in our faith. How easily we align ourselves with this God of wealth. Uh, but it's a bit like the old analogy of a frog in boiling water. We just grow comfortable. It feels nice. We no longer feel how used to it we've become. But this passage is God's call to wake us up, to see where wealth and riches will lead us. Uh, let us no longer be comfortable here. Secondly, see the bankruptcy of this God of money. It is a miserable God. We must keep telling each other that. Turn from it and keep turning from it. Thirdly, see and respond to the final destiny of those who do live by wealth. But let us not respond with pride, but as Paul would have us do in Philippians, with tears. These are our neighbours, our friends, our family, And Philippians says the response is uh, tears. It is not okay that this is the judgment that awaits them. And finally, and this is where we'll go next week, let us be those who patiently stand firm on the ground of the cross and the purpose the cross has given our lives. That is to be mature and complete and lacking for nothing. Well, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for uh, this word. It is a hard word for us to hear. We see your strong opposition to this desire to live for the comfort and security of wealth. We see your promise to judge such a life. Help us to see that clearly and help us, as the psalmist says, to see clearly how good it is uh, rather than to live and trust wealth, to live and trust you. And so we echo the psalmist and we say, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my riches forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of your deeds. 
Amen.